We are now no longer owing it anything. We're dead to sin. That's Paul's logic. Therefore, we do not have to sin. Now, we choose to. That's part of us we don't like, but it's there. Nevertheless, in any given instance, we can consider ourselves, and rightly so, dead to sin, and we do not have to do it. That's something you need to talk about with people. That was Dr. Michael Wise, and this is the Things Above podcast. Today's guest for a Things Above conversation is Dr. Michael Wise. Dr. Michael Wise is both scholar in residence and professor of Hebrew, Bible, and ancient languages at the University of Northwestern in St. Paul, Minnesota. His area of focus is ancient Judaism as a background to the rise of Christianity. He studied Semitic languages in order to immerse himself in rabbinic texts and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we're going to be talking about. He uses over 20 languages in his research, which is just mind-blowing. Today, Dr. Wise is an internationally recognized expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's also an ordained minister in the Evangelical Free Church, regular teaches adult Sunday school classes, and he's completed a second PhD, which makes him a paradox. There's my first joke of the day. <laughs> a paradox, two doctorate, two PhDs in the field of classics, ancient Greek and Latin literature. So this is one smart fella. Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Jim. Oh, it is great. We've known each other a few years, and I have admired your work so much. So today, for our listeners, since I have the person who's considered the world's expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls, I thought we'd start by saying, you know, helping our listeners understand, so what, what are these? And they are the Dead Sea Scrolls, not, as someone has asked you, the Dead Sea Squirrels. Squirrels. Yes, yes that'd yes. be a whole different... That is an interesting thing. There is no such thing, I, I don't believe. There's no squirrels in the Dead Sea. Not even fossilized. <laughs> okay, so not the squirrels, but the scrolls. But the several Dead Sea people scrolls. have made that mistake. And they asked, have. Ask me, you, you, the Dead Sea squirrels, yes. And so I, I, I regularly use that as an opening when I go talking. You know, if you're here to hear that, yes. you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it today. You should put a picture of a squirrel on there on the screen or something. That's and just, right. And, okay. All right. So to help listeners who maybe have no idea what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, I'm going to make a couple of observations. This is like a, a layman's basic understanding. And then you tell me, you know, that's true or not, or what, All right. maybe I'm missing it. So sure. in 1947, some Bedouin men herding goats in the hills to the west of the Dead Sea, which is in Israel, entered a cave near Wadi Qumran, in the West Bank, and they stumbled on some clay jars filled with leather scrolls. Ten more caves would be discovered over the next decade, and those jars would contain tens of thousands of fragments belonging to over 900 scrolls. And this pretty much accidental discovery of these scrolls in caves along the Dead Sea ultimately brought to the world the oldest manuscripts of some of the Old Testament books. How'd I do? Is that close? That was all very accurate. That was all okay. very accurate. Really? Okay. The, the other thing I would add to that, though, um, I, when I talk about this, I speak in terms of two areas in which these discoveries revolutionized our understanding of ancient times and of the Bible and of ancient Judaism. The first one you, you named, we've got the oldest copies of books of the Old Testament, a thousand years older than the oldest ones we had before this. Okay. So if you think about it, people at one point could actually argue, and the argument made sense even though it wasn't totally true, 
that, look, you say the Bible is this and this and this, and you don't even have copies of it that are old, any older than the early Middle Ages. How do we know it wasn't all made up in the mm -hmm. interim? How do we know who wrote it? Who can, who can verify these claims? But that, that it's as old as you say or anything like this? Well, of course, to people that are used to studying or hearing about the Bible, that sounds like a strange argument. But to lay people who are not experienced in this, that's a reasonable argument. Why should I believe this? Mm. These texts are not really that old. The oldest text we had of the Old Testament before these discoveries dated to around the year 8,000, 81,000. Wow. So now we were back to texts as old as 250 B.C. Yeah. So that's huge. That's huge. And the other area that was revolutionized was the study of the Judaism of Jesus' day. So among the scrolls were really a majority of the texts are non-biblical texts. So this was the, the thought world, the reading world of the Jew of Jesus' day. What was that like? What mm. were they reading? What were they thinking? How can that understanding help us understand Jesus in the New Testament? So that's been revolutionary as well. Wow. Okay. So just to recap, because this is important. So prior to this discovery in 1947, the, the last book of the Old Testament we think might have been written, what, like 400 B.C.? That's the usual date that's given for Malachi, okay. for example. So that would be—so if you're a person, you're looking at your Bible going, okay, this probably was written 400 B.C., 400 years before Jesus, the last book of the Old Testament. But then we don't have any actual manuscripts of those, these, these scriptures until like 1,080, is that what you said? That's right, 1,400, 1400 years later. And now we can go all the way back. I mean, more really or less, far. More or less, 150 okay. years. Which is incredible authentication. So, so then that is probably why Dr. William Albright, one of the world's leading archaeologists at the time, he said of this discovery, it is the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. Yes. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing. To, I mean, that's a huge gap of time. So now the Bible that we have has been greatly authenticated. Yes. But then you're saying a little bit more here. You're saying not just that, but we also know about the times of Jesus because this community, and we don't want to call them the Essenes, right? You want to call them the Qumran community? What's technically the right? The, in the field, the, this is a point that's argued. Who are these people? Who, who kept these? Who had these scrolls? Who yeah. wrote the scrolls? Are the people who had the scrolls at the end the same ones who wrote them because they were composed over more than 100 years? So there's lots of complexity potentially, if you think historically. But it's common to say that these are written by people called the Essenes. Mm -hmm. I find that a little simplistic if you wanted to get into the details, but it's okay to say that. Okay. And uh, I, f I think that a lot of the scrolls do not come from the site near the, t near the caves where the Essenes live, but rather from general Palestine. And they mm. were brought out in time of emergency to be hidden in the safest place people could find, which was in the caves out in the wilderness. They used mm -hmm. to go out there for hundreds of years. Uh, every time that the land was invaded, for example, at the time that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and the Temple of Solomon was destroyed in, in 586 B.C., mm. people fled to the wilderness. The ancient prophets write about this, flee to the wilderness, hide in the rocks. So this is a pattern that went on for millennia where people would go out into the desert. And the, the scrolls mm. are representative of that phenomenon. People brought them from other places and hid them. Okay. So here's a, a more of a, I don't know, what scientific kind of question. Was there something about the climate that helped them survive? I mean, that's a long time to survive in a way that we could still read them. That's right. The scrolls are were put in, a, in these caves out by the Dead Sea, which is 
a very particular environment, very different, for example, from Jerusalem. And it's almost without rain. It's almost without water. Mm. It's very, very dry, and it is preservative of things like animal skins or papyrus, which were the two materials on which people yeah. wrote. Similar to what happened in the sands of Egypt, where we've discovered many ancient writings that survived, because once you get away from the Nile, there's no water. Mm. And it's totally dry, hot, dry, mm-hmm. and things can survive for many centuries. Mm. In Jerusalem itself, no, no material written on what you might call soft surfaces, such as animal skins, has survived from antiquity. Nothing, because mm. it's, it's wet there. Yeah. It rains, there's snow. In the desert, it's totally different. It, welcome to your new home. Mm-hmm. The temperature out here is 140 degrees. Uh, by the way, we can't afford air, air conditioning. So that's where they live, some of these people. Wow, wow. It's, it's just amazing, I mean, that, that we have them. So, okay, here's another observation. You tell me if I'm close. Is it fair to say that the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrated unequivocally that the Jews were pretty faithful in their transcription of the biblical manuscripts? I mean, does that... Is that true, and does it help us have any confidence in the scriptures as we have them? The answer to that is, it, how, how, much answer, how much of an answer does one want? <laughs> okay. It, if you wanted to say, look, the Dead Sea Scrolls have shown us that the text of the Old Testament, because we're not talking New Testament here, Jim. Yeah, there's no, Old there's, Testament. No, right. there's no portion of the New Testament. Yeah, that's important. That's important to know. Mm-hmm. So these are texts in Hebrew and Aramaic, the two languages of the Old Testament. And not in Greek, except there are some materials in Greek, but they're not Bible. Mm. And the answer is yes, the texts show us the books we know were known and were well-preserved, very very carefully copied out. But they also show us more complexity than people had thought might have existed. And uh, so we can talk about that if you want to. The cutting edge in the study of the biblical text today mm-hmm. is not the text of the Bible, which is the, what are the exact words, mm-hmm. but rather the forms of the books. Ah, And okay. when you get to that question, the answer is more complicated. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, but overall, the authenticity, I mean, to have something. So let me just flip this, because when I, I was at Yale, there's a shameless drop of, you know, like, oh, where I went to school. Where is that again? Yale Divinity School. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that somewhere out east? It's in the, it's on the east coast. Yeah, yeah I thought so. Um, but I remember going to, there was a library there, the Beinecke Library, and they had like one of the oldest fragments of the Gospel of John. And I think they dated it like 103 or I don't know what it, but, but I mean, and it was a tiny little, this is all you got is a like a couple, not even a full verse maybe? Yes. Is that accurate? That I mean, for, in terms of the New Testament, what we have in terms of actual manuscripts we don't have we don't go too far back, or is that what what you're describing is some of the earliest manuscript material that survives of the New Testament? We, yeah, we can get back to within a generation of mm-hmm. the autographs, the original texts, yeah, with certain like the book of John, yeah. for example. Uh, and that's material that comes from the sands of Egypt. That's mm-hmm. where the we have over one hundred and twenty papyri fragments of the New Testament that have been discovered in the sands of Egypt. okay. So that's very, very important in terms of proving the, how widespread the Bible was. Yeah. How, I mean, in Egypt, after all, nobody, you know, this isn't Palestine. Right. And people were reading it as far back as, say, A.D. 120. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's huge. So yeah. it's very important. And they didn't it, have, uh, not only didn't they not have computers and photocopiers, they didn't have a printing press. No. So when they're writing 
say, the Gospel of John or making copies of it, it's all by hand. All by hand. So to have some consistency in the manuscripts is pretty astounding in some ways. Well, the fact is that they write on animal skins and every scroll is its own animal in more ways than one, right? Okay. So you've got scribes writing this. Here's something that people might find interesting. Any book that we have that survives today that was written before roughly 1500 has come to us by scribal transmission for at least part of its life. Another way to say it, a book that survived till the invention of the printing press from antiquity still exists today. Okay. But things that didn't make it to that, and that's 90, 95% of all that existed, didn't make it, Mm. it, those things have perished because scribes decided not to copy them or not Mm. to copy it very often. And so, for example, much of classical literature that that once existed, that's writings in Greek and Latin, had to pass through the hands of Christian scribes in the early Middle Ages. Many of the things that these ancient Greeks and Romans wrote about were offensive to Mm. ancient Christian scribes, and they simply didn't copy them. So it's like an inverted funnel. The things that have survived from antiquity had to pass through this narrow window, this funnel where Christian scribes were deciding not to copy things because they had let's say, profanity or something in them that was offensive or things that were happening with other gods, that kind of thing, they didn't survive. What we discover with the Dead Sea Scrolls is, and with some of the materials of the New Testament that we've been talking about are things that were dug up by archaeologists and they date back hundreds and hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press, but also before the sort of window uh, of the closing window of the late of late antiquity and mm. early, the early Middle Ages when scribes stopped copying things. Wow. So to get to what we have, the Bible that we have, here's another just basic observation. So the church had to consistently keep these manuscripts from, let's say, let's just pick any, I don't know, Romans, right? It had to, the church had to say, this is this is our book. Yes. It makes it into the canon, not for, to like four, fifth century, like 425. Like what the canon as we know it was finalized Around when? That's another thing. Canon is argue one end, by the way, to listeners. Not they're not exploding devices. This is C A N O N means the these are the the codified the, the the books that we trust to say these are the authentic books of the Bible. That's right. To have yeah. the fun canon, you need another end. <laughs> yeah, another, yeah. And then that's dangerous. So the, yes. no, this is the the church's canon. Yes. The uh, authorized books. So that doesn't. So, so the, the church, New Testament. Yeah. Books. Go. This is a question scholars argue about. When you talk about canon, you're saying which books made it in and by what process and, and by what date. Mm-hmm. And the answer for the New Testament is commonly given as something like what you said, the 4th century A.D. Mm-hmm. I, I think – and there are scholars who argue for an earlier date, which I think is likely right. Okay. For example, the writings of Paul I think were considered canonical instantly. Mm. That is, they were – they were read alongside Old Testament scripture. Remember, that's all they had as scripture in in Paul's day, right. Jesus' day. There was only the Old Testament. And so to have new writings come along that are considered to be a, given by God, that's quite a thing. Yeah. But that's what the Christians understood to be coming from the hands of Paul and other mm. apostolic writers. I think they were considered to be authoritative mm-hmm. and God-given, which is really what we mean by these term, by this term canon. Yeah. Right away. 
Yeah. Uh, so the earliest co- collection of the writings of Paul was probably circulating by A.D. 100. We can show that. Mm. And it may even go back earlier. It's possible, some people argue, that Paul himself collected his own writings. He, you say, who collected the writings of Paul to let wow. them circulate? Because Paul has people reading his letters in the churches, and he tells them to send the letters they have to other churches so they can right. read it too. So we have the process already kind of in infant form mm-hmm. in, the, in the writings of the writers of the New Testament themselves. Mm. They're describing the process. The Old Testament was actually canonized later than the New Testament. Really? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes. So the writings of the Hebrew Bible, as we call the Old Testament, if, mm-hmm. if, if we're being technical, yeah. Uh, that those writings were brought together as a collection to which you can add nothing nor take anything away. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the definition of canonicity. Mm-hmm. Somewhere between A.D. 150 and A.D. 300, according mm-hmm. to who you would talk to. So that's after the, the writings of the New Testament right. exist and probably are already being considered God-given and authoritative. Wow. So it took a longer time for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were some writings kind of at the margins of Scripture, you might say, that people argued, is it in or is it out? Mm-hmm. Such as the Song of Solomon, right? Mm. Shir HaShirot, as they, the Song of Songs, as they call it in yeah. Hebrew, which for some people was hard to square with God yeah. because of the contents. Yes, And so some people struggled with it. Mm-hmm. Others said, no, this is God-given, and they typically you know, dealt with the difficult aspects by by reading them as uh, symbolic. Symbolic, yeah. This is the Allegory. love of God and, and his yeah. people, not the love of a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Wow, Michael, I, did, I, had, I had never heard that. Wow. Okay, so let's pivot a little bit. And one of the things I love about you, there are many things, Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but when I first met you, I was really intimidated. Like, I'm going to be talking with the, the world's leading expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He, has, he knows a dozen languages and does all these things. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I, gotta, I was going to be nervous. And then I meet you, <laughs> and you wanted to talk about Jesus. Like, you yes. wanted to talk about you have this, you have a scholar's mind, but you have a pastor's heart. You, what the thing that drives your life is your, your passion for Christ. That's right. And the church. And I just went, oh, this is so refreshing. Because sometimes I would meet scholars and I didn't get that. So, so I love that about you. Thank but you. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your faith journey a little bit. I mean, how did this? How do you keep these these things? To, I'm not actually like, where did you meet Jesus back in wherever? I'm just saying, but but I mean, here you are as a scholar at the highest level, and yet you walk with Jesus in your own personal life. I mean, how does that work in your own journey? Well, it's not an entirely intellectual process, as you know. To know God, yes, it's it's partly intellectual, mm-hmm. but it's also a spirit, a spiritual experience. We have a spirit who lives in us, our human spirit, mm-hmm. and God's spirit meets our spirit, and that, and we have a relationship with God as all of your listeners or many of them mm-hmm. probably know because they experience it too. Right. So I think that we, uh, and especially evangelical people, tend to be very heady. And they talk about the scriptures, and we want to find the scriptural basis for this, the scriptural authority for this and that, and I think that's good. Yeah. But there's an experiential dimension to our faith that is not just attached to words on a page. It's direct. We have a direct relationship straight up, not mm-hmm. not through the book and up, yeah. straight up with God. Yeah. So 
I, I, I embrace that. I think that's very important to understand and to pursue. So I'm a person who believes in, in, in understanding and studying what the scriptures tell us about mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is God's way of relating to us. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, he's called both things mm-hmm. in scripture, is the, is the person of the Trinity through whom we experience the Father and the Son. Yeah. You're sounding pretty charismatic Pentecostal right now. And I love it. <laughs> I am a, I am a melding okay. of those two perspectives, and I think that's really a, a good thing. Yes. That is, as I read the New Testament, and I study the New Testament a lot, I teach mostly New Testament stuff in my church mm. life. Yeah. Even though I'm a scholar of the time of Jesus and Hebrew texts, yeah. I, I have, I've also got credentials in the New Testament period because I studied the classics. And yeah. uh, that's why I did it. Why did you go back and get a second doctorate? Mm. Because... I study a time when those two are meeting, and I had an elephant and a mouse. Mm. I needed to grow the mouse. So <laughs> I went back, and I got a little more vitamin power for that mouse. Mm. And so I study the, the New Testament intensively, and as I read the text, um, you know, the, the study of the Spirit is, inc- is immensely important. He's mm-hmm. all through the New Testament. Normative Christianity in Paul's letters for sure was a kind of charismatic Christianity, not the subculture we, we associate with charisma, yeah. the charismatics and the Pentecostals necessarily, but the experiential side of life in Christ, which they know well. Yeah. And maybe sometimes there's there's things that aren't entirely easy to square with Scripture that happen in, mm-hmm. some, in some of those circles, but they, they do know things by, by experience that not all evangelicals have experienced. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and so there's thing, and yet we evangelicals, because that's who I consider myself to be. Yeah, we are really good with the intel with the study of the book. Mm-hmm. We are people of the book. We know how to what we call exegete. That is, let's go in and get the meaning. Yeah. We're good at that. What we need is a melding of what we're strong at and what charismatics are strong at. Yeah, then we have New Testament Christianity. Yeah, I think so. Well, look, we've got an episode almost without quoting Dallas Willard, but <laughs> my mentor Dallas Willard said, there's no such thing as a non-charismatic Christian. We're all charismatic. We, right. all, we all rely on the, the Spirit led us to say, you, what did Paul say? You can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. That's he, right. That's a, that's a revelation. That's, to make that statement is the Spirit, my Spirit bearing witness. Right. So, yeah, I'm right. with you, Michael. I, I dig it, and that's so good. Okay, so this podcast is built on... The, the idea when Paul says, you know, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above, set your heart uh, on things above. And Paul will also say whatever's true, beautiful, good, you know, think on these things. Right. So, you know, I started this podcast with the idea that uh, I think it was James Allen who said, as we think, so we live, that yes. where we set our minds is. What, what does, but since I have a Bible scholar here who's New Testament, it's a mouse that grew, right? You're yes. <laughs> Not a squirrel. No, not the Dead Sea Squirrel. There's no such thing as a Dead Sea Squirrel. That's right. <laughs> but what I mean, help us understand because I heard Scott McKnight say that 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 phrase "set your mind on things above" is vexing for some. Like, what does that mean exactly? What are your thoughts on what Paul means when he says to set our minds on things above? Well, I first of all let me underline what James Allen said. Mm. I, I completely concur with that idea. Mm-hmm. It matters what you think. You can't live what you can't think, or at least it's very difficult, to, yeah. certainly to do it intentionally. 
So when Paul says, set your, set your minds on things above, or when he says something like he says in Romans 6.11, consider yourselves dead to sin mm-hmm. because of what we are in Christ, having, been, having died with him and then having been raised again with him mm-hmm. in, in the process of baptism right. and coming into Christ, which was complex, right? Uh, that's another discussion. Yes. But, <laughs> so, but the point is, you, it's important for us as believers to understand what's true mm-hmm. and to think what's true. So our life is literally in heaven mm-hmm. right now. It isn't, that's not, that's not a, a symbolic statement. Yeah. It's, it's a mysterious statement but it is also it's 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 true. Yeah. It's truer than truth here. So, wow. There is a sense in which we are already there because we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. That means we're united with him and he is there. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ. That that's yes. Colossians 3 as well, right? Yes. So yeah, that Paul's saying you died, your life is hidden with Christ meaning I it's already there. I can't see it. Yeah, so somebody says, where do you go to church? I say, well, I do it in heaven. <laughs> they have some it. good services, yeah. and, and they're every hour. So, But that's the kind of the answer I would mm-hmm. give. Similarly yeah. with the other, how do you live this life? I'm going to steal that one. I like that, Michael. Yeah. I, st- I talk with students about this all the time because students are very curious about how to live the Christian life. Mm. And honestly, we don't do a, a great job of practical instruction on the, sort of the details of that. In many of our churches, uh, at least my students don't know don't these get things. It. Yeah, and a lot of adults don't know it. Mm-hmm. So, go back to the go back to the text, and so Paul says, "Consider yourselves dead to sin." Okay, what does that mean? How do I am am, am I really mm-hmm. sinless? No, not in that sense. Not in that sense. But you are dead to sin in that you are able to be unresponsive to temptation. Mm-hmm where a person who's not in Christ cannot not sin. Mm, okay. Christians have that capacity. There's no sin that we can be tempted to, to do that we do not have the capacity to resist mm. because of Christ, because we have his spirit. Yeah. And, that, and so you have to know that. You have to consider that that's true, Yeah. Paul is saying. Know what's true. Consider yourselves dead to sin. You've died to sin, Paul says. How can it be that we who have died to sin would yet live in it? Mm. It's it's illogical. Right. We've moved. We don't live in that neighborhood anymore. Mm-hmm. Why would you go back there? Right. To that rundown hovel you used to live in when you've got this magnificent mansion in this place. Preach it. That is right. It's Romans 6, right? Yes. Yeah. Can we sin all the way so that grace will abound? Well, it will abound, but why would you? Right. It, to, yeah. to Paul, who saw the logic of all this very clearly, it was literally nonsense mm-hmm. to, to think that you would go on living the life you once had when you're no longer, you're dead to that life. You've, yeah. you've literally died to that. Here's something that people don't always think about. Look, what is the, what are the wages of sin? Scripture says the wages yeah. of sin. Romans 6, 23. Are death. Yeah. It's death. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, the purpose of sin or the, or the end game of sin is to kill you. Right. So... And remember, this is a tool of the enemy, mm-hmm. right? It's one of the enemies Jesus will defeat, the last enemy to be defeated, according to 1 Corinthians 15, death. Mm-hmm. So it's an enemy. It's, a, it's not supposed to be. 
yeah. in the world that God first created. So, so Paul is saying, look, in Christ you have literally died. That is, you've, in, in being baptized into Christ spiritually and indeed with water, mm-hmm. uh, which is it one thing that. in the yeah. ancient world, there wasn't a separation. Mm-hmm. You got baptized as soon as you confessed Christ, basically. It wasn't a long, protracted process as it sometimes is in our world. Mm-hmm. So, you got, so he talks about it that way. He doesn't see a distinction between baptism and becoming a Christian. Mm-hmm. They're the same. But that's not to say you're saved by baptism, so don't right. misunderstand. But So Paul sees this as a single thing. And when you go under the water, that's the equivalent of going down in the ground. Of dying. You're buried with Christ. You're mm-hmm. dead. Okay, you're dead. Yeah. The logic of that is you no longer owe sin anything. You've paid that price. Mm-hmm. It's got you where it wanted to, so to speak. You died. Yeah. But here's the thing. It didn't count on it. You came back to life. Just like Jesus. Like Jesus. Yeah. In Christ, we did that. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we are now no no longer owing it anything. We're mm-hmm. dead to sin. Yeah. That's Paul's logic. Yeah. Therefore, we do not have to sin. Yeah. Now, we choose to. Mm-hmm. That's part of us that yeah. we don't like, but it's there. Yeah. Nevertheless, on in any given instance, we can consider ourselves, and rightly so, dead to sin, and we do not have to do it. Mm-hmm. That's something you need to talk about with people. It is. Students, it's huge. It's, so you're talking about, when you're talking about consider the things above, set your mind on the things above, you're talking about how to think mm-hmm. about what's true. Yeah. It's huge. Because that's who you are. Your identity yes. is in Christ. Paul, I think, uses the phrase in Christ or Christ in us like 89 times. Yes. You know, I always I'll tell my students, that's how Paul self-identified. I'm in Christ. Yes. Christ is in me. And that's that was also that that uh, that I think that that drove his ethics. His ontology drove his ethic. Like I think it's in Corinthians where the forgive the reference, but that they, they were sleeping with temple prostitutes. Like some of the yes. the court, like can we still do that, Paul? Because we used to do that before Jesus. And yeah. he's like, uh, no, because your Christ is in you. You can't unite Christ with into that relation. It's not who you are. It's not. Is it's, that right? I mean, like it's, it's literally a, not who you are. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've, I've, I've heard you describe on your podcast your definition of faith. Okay. And Uh-oh, he's been listening. I'm scared I have. Now. I have been listening, and I like it. <laughs> the extension of something you— Extension of knowledge. Yes. Yeah. So I have a definition that I teach people that I think is very m- compatible with what you say. Okay. I'd like to say it now. Yeah. Because it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Faith is seeing reality the way God sees it and responding accordingly. Oh, that's good. Say that again. Faith is seeing reality the way God sees it and responding accordingly. So that is, that's right where our discussion is leading. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how does God see the reality of you? How does God see the reality of sin mm-hmm. and temptation? Our mission, you might say, is to align our thinking with what God thinks. Mm-hmm. And then when we know what God thinks, we respond accordingly. Yes. We live accordingly. And yes. God enables us to live. Because mm-hmm. once we're aligned with him, everything we're doing is according to his will. And he says, I'll, I'll empower that all for as long as you live. Wow. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. And another Dallasism, he would say, reality is what you bump into when you're wrong. Like, like reality doesn't budge. <laughs> right. And, and, if, and, if, and if, so if someone says, well, I think sin is good, mm, try it. Like it's, it's never going to work. That's right. You're going right. to bump into that and go, I guess it wasn't that. 
That's right. So that is brilliant. Say that one more time. I love that. Faith is... Faith yeah. is seeing the reality the way God sees it mm-hmm. and responding accordingly. And part of that is me, like how he sees me. Yes. He sees me as this sacred child. And I, you know, in my new book, The Good Meaningful You, I say, you were divinely designed, divinely desired. God foreknew you. God wanted you. Jesus gave his life for you. You are special and sacred. That's how God sees me. Right. And I, if I could see me that way, wow, I think that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Or take the example of Jesus in the Gospels. I find it very interesting because I, I have regular prayer for people for healing. Mm. Okay? So I look at our master and I say, how did Jesus do it? What did he say? What did he do? And Jesus would often say to a person, your faith has healed you. A person would say, Jesus, heal me of my blindness, Bartimaeus, for yeah. example. Right? And Jesus said to him, your faith has healed you. Go. Go your way. And so Jesus didn't pray. Right, in the sense of asking. that right. uh, To the Father or yeah. something like that. He had authority to declare. Hmm. He declared that he was healed. And that was so because the person in this case, for example, Bartimaeus, had come to Jesus and that meant he was seeing reality the way God sees it. Yes. And he was acting accordingly. Mm-hmm. Bam. Yes. He, he, and God aligns with him. Yeah, so when he is saying, you can do this, you know, I know he's you crying can. out, I know you can. The very fact he comes knows that. Knows that. So that was an act of faith. Yes. An extension of knowledge based on knowledge and yes. then seeing reality as it is. Our definitions work together. They totally do. Yes. They do. This is good. I love it. <laughs> we got to work together more. I love it. Who knows what we could do, Michael? Come I, on. I think it's great. This I is so good. I think it would good. be fun. It would be fun, and we will. Good. Oh, wow. Michael, thank you so much for being on this podcast today. You said so much. I'm going to probably listen to this podcast five times because well, I'm just going to go back and go, he, what did he say? I got to write this down. I'll, so. I'll enjoy listening to it too. Okay. I do enjoy your your podcasts. Thank I, you. I, I, I do. That means so, a lot. Yeah. That means a lot. I'm going to tell people. Yeah. The leading scholar of ancient Judaism and the Dead Sea Scrolls likes the podcast. Well, here's the thing. God <laughs> is using you. Hmm. None of us does anything that's worth anything right. except that God does it through us. Yeah. That's what charisma means. It's a gracing. Mm. It's the exercise of God's grace through people mm-hmm. in the lives of others. Yeah. So to say if somebody's a charismatic, which comes from that word charisma, gifting, yeah. that's a biblical concept through and through. It's, I, it's the mercy and grace of God in action. Despite us, right? He, he yes. chooses us, which always shocks, you know. Yes. I knew you couldn't get through this podcast without doing a little spitting, without charisma. Yeah. You had to. It's in your It's there. That language. It's just, you know, you studied the languages, <laughs> you got to use them. <laughs> it's so good. Well, thank you for being, this has been fantastic. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, Things Above.